0: Our Bible reading this morning is on page 966, and it's from Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realised that he had been outwitted by the Magi, He was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We need to talk about Herod. This nasty little coda to Matthew's telling of the nativity rarely gets a look in because it doesn't really find its way into our nativity scenes or our mantelpieces or window sills for sort of understandable reasons, I guess. There aren't many children's plays which include this vicious, murderous tyrant And in fact, I think I've only ever encountered one nativity performance, which included Herod. uh, And I was the one portraying him, age 14, as a murderous, uh, or as a pantomime villain. And there's only one carol that I know of, uh, which is Coventry carol, but don't worry, we're not going to be trying to sing that one as well today. But the horrific events, described in today's bible reading have found their way into some religious art now i'm going to be honest most of it is a little bit too grisly to put up on the screen especially when we've still got young people and children in the room Um, but there is one that i would like you to see and i think rob's got it to stick up there we go does anyone recognize this one have you seen this one before this is the massacre of the innocents painted in the netherlands in the 1560s by a guy named Peter Bruegel, And if you look closely, you will notice that there is something missing. Because there are no innocents, and there is no massacre. And that's because all of the children in this picture, uh, well, instead of children, there's bags of fruit and geese. And because shortly after the painting was made, the Holy Roman Emperor, Rudolf II, acquired the painting and had all of the babies painted over. You see, like the festively named Rudolf II, we find all of this a little bit difficult and uncomfortable to look at. It doesn't sit very well with the carols and the baubles and the gifts and the chocolates We want to celebrate the birth of Christ, not dwell on these harrowing events which followed. And when all of the mince pies have been eaten, we're quite keen to move on to the next thing with maybe a quick stop to celebrate with the wise men. But of course, the Bible is not a children's book and this grisly episode is here. And it demands our attention, because it's a really crucial part of the story that Matthew is telling. Jesus in a manger is part of Matthew's bigger picture. It's not the end of the story. In fact, it's just the beginning. So can anyone tell me about another Bible story where innocent boys are systematically killed by a tyrannical and merciless leader. Pharaoh, I heard that coming from down here. Yes, if you flick back to Exodus 1, you will find the birth story of Moses. Pharaoh ordered that all of the young Hebrew boys be killed at birth. But aided and abetted by some sneaky midwives, Moses' mother Moses mother, puts him into a basket and floats him down the river Nile where he is found and raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And I think that Matthew is inviting us to draw a few comparisons between the two stories. In fact, I think he's quite heavy-handed about it because Like Moses crossing the Red Sea, Jesus passes through the waters of baptism before entering into the wilderness. And where for Moses it was 40 years, for Jesus it was 40 days and nights. Moses led 12 tribes of Israel, and Jesus led the 12 disciples. Jesus inaugurated a new covenant, a new Passover. He went up a mountain and returned, shining with the radiance of God. And Moses had been the one who had led the people to freedom, who brought them to a promised land, the one who had put up a pole in the desert, which brought healing to all who looked upon it. Like Exodus, Matthew's gospel is a story about the people of God being set free and finding their way to the promised land. But this new covenant is written on, well, not on tablets of stone, but in our hearts and in our minds. Jesus was far greater than Moses. Jesus was, is God with us, who rescues all of creation from far more than just Egyptian Egyptian pharaohs. But there's still no getting away, getting around the fact that this is a distressing cer- set of circumstances. Moses killing innocent children not sorry, gosh, that's not in the Bible. Pharaoh killing innocent children. Herod killing innocent children. and this. One innocent child, Jesus Christ, fresh from the celebration of the shepherds, has set in chain a series of events which lead to the death of many more. It's hard to escape being reminded of other tragedies. Abafan, Dunblane, Sandy Hook, children queuing for food banks, children fleeing from the Taliban, children separated from their families and kept in cages, all of these things and many more are direct or indirect consequences of our great failure to love our neighbor. The destruction of a precious generation on the whim of a capricious king. And so Matthew makes this poetic connection with Rachel, who was the matriarch of Israel, weeping over her children. He evokes the sense of loss and devastation that they felt as the people of Israel were being led into exile. hoping that someday someone might come to rescue them. And this passage from Jeremiah 31, which Matthew is quoting here, goes on to offer some hope. It says, There is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. The violence and the horror, though it is real now, will come to an end. The evil in the world which Herod represents will not last. And like Rachel, Mary would one day weep at the loss of her son as he was hung on a cross. Jesus would die. But on the third day, he was resurrected and we are resurrected with him. You see, the loss is real. It is heavy. It costs. And we must never allow glib theological glosses to paint over the reality of evil in our world or the pain that we experience. But, as one writer put it last year, Jesus didn't come to a clean world He didn't come to a sweet and sterile one where the straw is soft instead of itchy, where we skip over the shame of an unwed Mary, where mad kings don't kill babies. If that was the world he had come into, what power could he have had in ours? No, Jesus came into our messy world, to a sobbing and bleeding world. But still he brought life, The cries of mothers are still there, but so are the cries of the angels. The gasps of horror, but the gasps of the shepherds too. The pain does not drown out the light. Perhaps this conflict was an inevitable consequence of God coming among us. I'm not willing to say that God ordained the death of these children. But when the Prince of Peace arrives, he exposes the limitations of all other forms of peace. The powers and principalities are threatened and they respond with that violence which underpins their power. And Herod was no exception. Here was a man who had ordered that on his death, a number of his enemies be killed, just so he could guarantee that there would be some public mourning. This is a man who had murdered his wife and three of his sons for his own political gain. By all accounts, Herod was a man who was not afraid to use violence to preserve his power. And he felt threatened. He had lavished vast sums on extending the Jewish temple, presiding over an arrangement with the Roman authorities so that the Jewish people could remain in a sort of little enclave within the Roman Empire. And in fact, he'd raised taxes to breaking points just to fund all of these massive building works. So on one hand, he was trying to buy the... um, by the appreciation of the Jewish people, and on the other hand, he was taxing them and perhaps even forcing them to travel to their place of birth so that he could conduct a census. Surely he was the king of the Jews. This is where I get a little bit frustrated with the Christmas story being sanitized and domesticized because I can't find a way of reading this passage or any of the gospel, really, which isn't political. The Messiah, simply by being born, strikes fear to the heart of the political establishment. You may know that the word gospel, uh, or in Greek, oiangelion, was a word which was used by Emperor Caesar Augustus to herald the good news of the arrival of a kingdom of peace and salvation. Roman emperors were often described as the son of God, and they used language like salvation for those who pledged allegiance to their kingdom. So in light of this, the opening of Matthew's gospel, about the birth of a Messiah who comes preaching a new kingdom, reads less like a children's play and more like a manifesto, the beginning of a revolution, the beginning of a very different kind of kingdom. The nativity is unavoidably political and the good news of Jesus Christ, our Saviour, brings us into conflict with many who would claim that throne. And it's this which forces Jesus immediately into exile as a political refugee. We have domesticized Christmas and Jesus with it. And we should be allowing it to challenge our assumptions about the way the world should be. And I'm not, when I say politics, I'm not talking about the murky world of Westminster. Or at least I'm not just talking about the murky world of Westminster. I'm not telling anyone how to vote or that one party is more aligned with the gospel of Jesus Christ than another. Because the thing that the gospel exposes is that none of them can save us but that the way that we live our lives together matters. The way that authority is wielded by those in power matters. In a world where 33 million children have been forcibly displaced in just the last year, the gospel is political. In a country or in a world where children living in Afghanistan, Yemen, Gaza, even modern day Bethlehem have known nothing but conflict for their entire lives, the gospel is political. In a country where 356,000 food parcels were delivered to children between April and September last year alone, the gospel is unavoidably political. In a wealthy land where we allow 30% of children to live in poverty, the gospel is deeply political. Yes, the gospel offers us salvation, but in the process it exposes the implications of the darkness we all carry around. It calls us to repentance, to live our lives differently in light of a future hope. You see, the reason, can we have the picture back, please? Thank you. The reason that Rudolf II painted over this um, image is unlikely to be because it made him feel a bit squeamish but because the snowy Flemish scene resembled one of many of those villages which were under occupation by the Spanish army at the time. And the soldiers bear Rudolf II's own imperial heraldry. In this image, Rudolf recognized a challenge to his authority, a challenge which came straight out of the pages of Matthew's Gospel. Of course he wanted to paint over it. We have a savior in Jesus Christ who sets us free from all that binds us. Jesus is more of a savior than Moses or Herod or Caesar or Rudolf II could ever be. His kingdom is greater. His peace is deeper than anything the Roman Empire or the modern world can offer. But he brings into light the things that are hidden. And we must never paint over the evil that we encounter. Not in our world, not in our lives, not in our nativity. We need to talk about Herod.